Amen. Um, so excited um, to have Pastor David Kaya with us this morning. Um, we have had a partnership with Empower One in South Sudan, Sudan, and Uganda. Uh, I, say, I, I believe since about 2003, 2005, somewhere in there. It's one of the longest standing international mission partners that we have here at Lenexa Baptist Church. We have stood with them prayed for them, supported them in the good days and the very difficult days, and they've had some very, very difficult days in South Sudan. But as that video portrays, it's a new day, and what man meant for evil, God intended for good. Uh, as Paul said to the Philippians, these things that have happened to me have actually served to advance the gospel. God in his great grace has taken these awful circumstances and he's turned it around in a new day where the gospel is advancing. And I'm very grateful for Pastor David Kaya, his leadership, and uh, all the many ways in which he sacrificed to see that work continue to go forth. We have planted flagship churches, the first there in Nimule. Um, you have helped support that work. We have also, if you'll remember, at the end of last year, we collected about $75,000, a little over that, to help build a water well to meet, as the video said, not just the spiritual needs, but the physical needs of that community so that they would come and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And they're training up leaders, being sent out. They're planting more churches. Uh, I want to encourage you this morning before you leave, connect with Pastor David Kaya. Uh, ask him how you can pray for him. And um, I'll tell you what, you'll meet a hero of the faith. That is what he is. He's a man of God, a hero of the faith. You'll be blessed just to have the opportunity to meet him. Pastor David, we're grateful for you. Uh, we're going to pray for you at the end of our service, but grateful that you're here today. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to read, uh, open them to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to look there this morning at verses 18 down through the end of the chapters. You're finding your place there in God's Word. I want to welcome Reach Church DeSoto, Reach Church Paola, the venue service right down the hall. We're grateful for each and every one of you. Also, uh, our online viewers this morning, some of you may have uh, your online and the Chiefs game up at the same time. Um, I don't know about that. I don't know if it counts. I don't know. Um, <laughs> we'll pray for you. Maybe the Holy Spirit will convict you. Um, now, and some of you, no phones out this morning, all right? I'm watching. I'm watching. I may call you out, you know. Don't be opening that phone up, all right? Pastor Bill, put that phone away. All right. Um, see, I had to get one, Pastor Jim, you know. You got to be watching. I got to be on alert all the time. <laughs> 2 Samuel chapter 7, we come to this passage this morning. It's an incredible passage. The context here is that God has revealed to David all that he's going to do. You remember David said, God, I'm going to build you a house. And God said, no, no, no. You remember he says to David, there's no precedent for that. Never had a house. I, David, I, I've never complained about not having a house. Don't you love this about God? God I, says to him, I appreciate all the work you really want to do, but I, I'm doing just fine. I'm going to be all right without a house. David, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. David, I, I'm going to do something for you. It's that good reminder that you can never outdo God. Our heart's desire is to do more for God, right? We want to do more for him. No matter how much we do, you can't ever outdo God. Uh, you can't ever outgive him. He always gives to us and more than we could ever give to him. And so God's going to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that David could ever think, ask, or imagine. God says, David, I'm going to build a dynasty. I'm going to build you a house. And remember, a house, not just a physical building, but a dynasty. I'm going to create a monarchy. We've not had a monarchy. Gideon tried to start one. Uh, Saul tries to, no, no. God says, now. Now we're going to create a monarchy. I'm going to raise up one of your sons, and he'll build me a temple. You're not going to do it. I'll have him build me a temple. And uh, through you. 
I'm going to raise up one of your descendants who will be a king over the world and over the nation of Israel forever. What an amazing promise. God says to David, the greatest person, the greatest individual that ever walked the earth will come through your line. God says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to do more than you ever thought possible. And David, what we see in verses 18 through 29 is just David's response, and it's a prayer. What you see in the previous verses, uh, 1 through 17, it's the longest discourse of God with any individual in the Old Testament apart from Moses in the giving of the law. And what you see of David is one of the longest prayers in the Old Testament. And it's just a prayer of praise and response to what God said he would do. This is really how we should pray. We, we, we reflect on God's word revealed to us. And then we pray back to God in response to his word. That's the pattern of David here. It's a powerful prayer that speaks of the greatness of God. With that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for your word. This is a word that has been written for our benefit so that we could know more about who you are and how we relate to you and what you've done for us. God, I pray that we would come this morning with teachable hearts, that you'd help us to lay aside all we think we already know. God, you would speak to us, you would change us. We come this morning to be changed to be transformed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God for the glory of God. God, draw us to yourselves. Illumine your Word. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at what David says in, in verse 18. It says, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Then King David the king, he went in and sat before the Lord. He went in. Most believe that he is going into the tent. You remember David has said, uh, I got this house. You're, uh, you dwell in a tent with curtains. And the ark of God was there. That was the, kind of the earthly representation of God's glory. And it sits in this tent. And it's, it's the picture is that David goes into that tent, goes into the presence of God. Now, this was a little unusual but David is beginning to demonstrate for us, giving us a glimpse of the, of the greater son of David, the priest king. Because David in this way is going to represent the nation. He's going to go in before God in his presence. And he's going to pray. And as he enters into God's presence, it says he sets that set down. Now, um, in the tabernacle, in the tent, there was no chairs. There was no chairs in the temple. Why were there no chairs in the temple? Why no chairs in the tabernacle? Because the work of, of sacrifice was never finished. It was never done. It was never complete. It was symbolic representation of what was needed, a reminder of the, of the Lamb of God who would come that we just sang about. And, and so the work was never done. It was always ongoing. That's why it's so significant when the author of Hebrews does, says of Jesus that he is seated at the right hand of God. Why is Christ seated? Because the work is done. What did he say on the cross to tell us thy? It is finished. What is finished? The work for your salvation and mine is done. To tell us that in the, the, the perfect tense, I mean it's completed once and forever, never to be repeated again. And now David, as he sits down, is giving us a glimpse of the greater son who will complete that work and sit in the presence of God. But David really here is sitting because he's so overwhelmed by the grace that God has bestowed upon him. He gets into God's presence, and remember, there's no chair, so when he sat, it means he sat on the ground. 
it's almost as, as if in light of God's grace bestowed upon him that he can't get low enough before God. You ever felt that way? You've been in God's word. You're so overwhelmed by his, what he's done. You, you just get, I, I get on my knees sometimes and you just feel like you can't, you, you bow before the Lord. It's almost like you can't get low enough. I remember in the testimony of the great preacher, Adrian Rogers, he said, his, and his testimony was that in the presence of God and his revealed word and what God had done for him in Christ, he just prostrated. So like he fell face first on the ground before God in light of what he's done. That's the picture of David here. He's so overwhelmed by the greatness of God and the depth of his sinfulness that he just can't get low enough. And then he has these two questions. Who am I? David says, who am I? Who am I? The, the question is, who am I that you would bestow this grace upon me? Now, who is David? David, at this moment, he's a pretty significant individual. He's got quite the resume, doesn't he? A little different picture than we see of David in 1 Samuel chapter 7. When he starts out of the run of the litter out in the, shep, out in the field with the sheep. But David now is what? David is the warrior king. Da- David is the anointed of God. David is the giant killer. David is the one who's defeated the Philistines, defeated the Amalekites. He's the guy who brought the ark into the holy place, into the centerpiece of, of the nation in the capital city. This is the great warrior king with an incredible resume of great works. But what David says here is that in light of the glory of God, All my accomplishments are rubbish. I think the danger for any of us is the further we get removed from the point of salvation, we begin to think we're pretty good. We start to think, boy, look at all the stuff I've done for God. He's pretty lucky to have me on his team. And, And then if we're not careful, we begin to look down on other people that we don't think are as great as we are. David was reminded in the presence of God's glory, I am nothing. Who am I? It was the mindset of Paul. You remember Paul uh, in, in Philippians chapter three, he recounts his resume, his spiritual resume. Paul is making the argument that if anybody could have got to God on the basis of their spiritual res- resume and in their righteousness according to the law, it was me. Paul says, I'm the litmus test. If you can get there on the basis of righteousness according to the law, let me be the litmus test. And, and what does Paul say? Whatever things were gained to me, I count as loss. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. That spiritual resume is dung when I stand in the light of God's glory. It earns me no merit and my only hope. He says, he goes on to say, having a righteousness not derived from the law, but a righteousness that comes by faith. Paul and David both understood, I am nothing. In fact, you want to know what's interesting about Paul? Early in his ministry, he says, I'm the worst of the apostles. I'm the least of the apostles. Later, he'll say, I'm the least of Christians. And at the very end of his life, you know, he'll say, I'm the chief of sinners. It was almost as if, see, I think the danger is we get further removed from salvation. We start to think, we start to think we're something. David, the longer he walked with God, the more overwhelmed he was by the grace of God. That God would want to use him. That God would save him. That's the heartbeat of David. Who am I? What's my house? David said, I didn't come from some prestigious family. I'm nothing. 
I don't have some resume. I, there's no reason, there's nothing in me that God would look down upon me and say, I gotta have this guy. No, why did God choose David? I'll tell you one of the reasons I think God chose David because he chooses the runts of the litter. He likes the base things of the world. Do you remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? Consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you are wise, mighty, and noble. Look around, folks. We are not a collection of the world's brightest, most beautiful, intelligent people in all the world. God delights in taking base things. The nobodies and the nothings of this world. And lift them up so there's no way any of us can take credit for what we've done. God says, all these other boys, I don't want them. That runt out there that nobody wants, I'll take him. Watch what I can do through this guy. David says, what is my house? That you brought me this far. You've done this, God. There was this continual recognition in David. All that, all that I have accomplished, all, all this, the only explanation is God. When was the last time? We, we, we are pretty bad about always focusing on the bad things that are going on in our life. You want to do something that will change your attitude? Go home this week and read Ephesians chapter 2. And be reminded of what God has done for you in Christ. And you just ponder. You ponder all that God has done for you. And you be amazed at how God has brought you to where you are today by his grace. And you'll change your attitude about life. That's David. I'm, I'm amazed. I'm overwhelmed. He goes on to say, what does he say in verse 19? And this was insignificant. This was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, oh Lord God. He says, this is insignificant because what David realizes is, is, is yes, God has brought him this far. God has done, God has already done exceedingly and abundantly more than David could have ever thought, asked, or imagined. Well, but what begins to hit him is that what he's already experienced is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what God has promised he will do in the future. You've been great to me, but you're going to raise up a son. He's going to build a temple. You're going to establish my, my kingdom. You're going to establish an, a descendant to sit on the throne forever. The promises of God are going to be fulfilled through my line. You're speaking about the distant future, things I can't even see, things that will outlive me. God, you're, you're good, not because of what you have done, not just because of what you're doing, but God, you're good because of what you're going to do. And, and when you think about this in terms of our salvation and what we have experienced, the thought went through my mind that, listen, I don't know about you, but I am grateful that through faith in Christ, I have been freed from the penalty of sin. Do you know that today, that if you've been if you trusted in Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, you are what Scripture says, justified, just as if you'd never sinned. Now God looks down upon you through the shed blood of his, Jesus, his son, Jesus Christ, and he calls you a saint. As if you'd never sinned. Judiciously, you've been made right in the sight of God on the basis of faith in Christ. Not only have you been freed from the penalty of sin, you've been freed from the power of sin. Any of you today grateful that sin does not reign over your life? You don't have to say yes to sin and no to God. You can say no to sin. You can say yes to God. 
Sin doesn't rule my life anymore. Satan doesn't rule my life. The Lord rules my life, and he has given me victory. Oh, boy, those are good promises. But, folks, let's not forget that all that God has done already is just the tip of the iceberg. Because what God has prepared, you know what Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's not even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Folks, you have an eternal destination that is so secure. You know what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2? He says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, for by grace you have been saved, has raised us up. Now think about that. That's past tense, right? He's raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, I don't know about you, but when I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, God didn't automatically raise me up to heaven. I'm still here. So why is he talking about it in the past tense? Why did he say that he's already raised us up? You know what Paul is saying? He's reminding us that your salvation and your eternal destination is so secure that we can talk about it as if it's already happened. Isn't that good? That why, why, why can we believe? Well, on the basis of God's word, God said it. Jesus, what he said, uh, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. You don't know, I love this one, Jesus. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go away to prepare a place for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ has gone away to prepare a place individually for you? That he's gone before you to prepare a place? That's the security. That's the wonder of God's love. Not just what he has done, but what he's going to do. I remember years ago watching a, a, a documentary on comparative religions. And it had one of these, the, these British guys. You know, that British kind of arrogant guy. And he's he's going to do a little segment on Protestant evangelicals. And guess where he goes? Kentucky. Like, why are you going to Kentucky, all right? Well, he goes to Kentucky. Praise God. He goes to Kentucky, and he's going to this evangelical church, and this pastor's preaching kind of like me. You know, he's all fired up and spitting. I tell the people on the front row, that's a spit deal, you know? You got to watch it, you know? Um, but, but, man, he's fired up. He's preaching, and, and at one point in the message, that pastor preaches, he says, how many of you know today? You know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven. And, boy, everybody in that place just raised their hands like this. I'm going. And that uh, arrogant British man, his tweed jacket, little pipe, he's leaning against one of the pillars. He goes, the, the, the odd thing about these folks is that they speak of judgment day as if it's already occurred. And I wanted to scream, it has already occurred. It occurred on Calvary when Christ died for our sins. He paid the price. He took the wrath of God for our punishment on our sin so that we could go free. And now through faith in him, our eternal destination is secure. He guarantees it through the resurrection from the dead. Do you see why David is so overwhelmed? God, you've done so much for me already. And if that weren't enough... You said it gets even better. That's, you know the good thing about us as believers? The best is always yet to come. Isn't that good? Kind of keep your fork mentality. The best is yet to come. Well, David goes on. We can camp out here. We got to get going, all right? So, and, and you know what's great there at the end? Is this the custom of man? That's that, 
the commentators disagree on exactly how to interpret it. I take that like as a question. He's saying, is this, is this the custom man? Meaning David is saying, this is not how man acts. We love people based on merit, don't we? Like, if you do good to me, I'm going to be good to you. That's kind of how it's reciprocation, merit, whatever. David is saying, I'm a wretched sinner, and yet you still love me. That's not how man works. It's, it's, it's Paul in Romans chapter 5 when Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love. You remember he says, for, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even die, but God demonstrates. See, the love as man is, we, we will do good things for people as long as we think they deserve it. But God's love is unique in this way, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This love of God is completely unique. We don't have anything on this earth to compare it to. Nothing comes close. Then he goes on in verse 20. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. David says, I I don't even know what to say. Words can't express my gratitude. And, and, And part of that is because you know your servant. David says, you know me. You know how unworthy I truly am. Can I tell you this this morning that God knows you better than you know yourself. And only God truly knows the depth of your unworthiness. We will never, folks, we will never be able to fully comprehend the depth of our own unworthiness because we can't fully comprehend the glory of God. We can't fully grasp the holiness of God. And because we can't fully grasp the holiness of the God against who we've sinned, we will never fully be able to grasp the depth of our sinfulness. And that's what hits David, is David is basically saying, God, you know better than me how unworthy I am. You know everything about me. And yet you've bestowed upon me this grace. Uh, when I read that, you, you know your servant, it reminded me of Peter. You remember when Peter's restored to Christ by the, the when, when, when Peter says, I'm gonna go fishing, I lost him fishing, I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go fishing again, maybe I'll find him. They go fishing and they, they throw the net on the other side and they, pull, they realize it's Jesus and Peter runs and he goes to the shore and don't have anything to say. They eat breakfast, but then after breakfast, you remember John 21, Jesus restores Peter and you remember what he says to Peter, Peter denied him. Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? It's the Greek word agape. Peter, do you love me? Like, you remember Peter was the one who said, listen, all these other jokers, they'll, they'll probably betray you because they don't love you like I do. I love you more than all these. And Jesus comes back to him and says, do you really love me? We're go- Peter, we're gonna find out, will you be honest with me? Do you really love me? Do you agape love me? Peter responds, he says, I love you, but he doesn't use agape, he uses the Greek word phileo. Do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, I'm fond of you. Now he's getting honest. Now we're getting down to the brass tacks of the issue. Peter, the second time, do you love me? Do you agape me? Lord, I'm fond of you. Jesus won't let it go. He's going to go one more time. But this time, Jesus says to him, 
Peter, are you really just fond of me? You know what Peter says? Lord, you know everything. Peter says, I've been exposed. I'm a sinner. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. I'm just fond of you. Now Jesus says, now tend my sheep. See, now I can use you, Peter. I don't, I don't need you to be perfect, but you gotta be honest with me about who you are. But if you'll admit you're a sinner, I really delight in raising up sinners for the purposes of my glory. That's David. You know everything about me. I'm so unworthy. And yet, God, you bestowed grace upon me. Look at what it says. He goes on in verse 21. For the sake of your word. So the question is, why would God do this if David is unworthy? Well, here's why. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. You've done this according to your word. Why would God do this? God would do this because this is what God said he would do. God said to Abraham, in you, in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. We go back further than that. God said to Adam and Eve, I'll put in, really said to the serpent, but I'll put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And he, one man, will crush your head. He'll defeat Satan. But he'll be bruised in the transaction, meaning he'll be wounded. I'm going to send somebody that's going to defeat sin, Satan, and death, but he's going he's to die in the process. He'll be wounded. God made a promise. I'm sending someone. He said to Abraham, now it's going to come through you in your seed. Then he comes to David, and we're narrowing the focus. And David says, you're doing this because this is what you said you would do. God does everything in accordance with his perfect will. Everything in accordance. Now, unless we get to a place where we start thinking that God is just some mechanical, non-feeling God, David goes on and says, according to your word and according to your heart. Yes, God does everything according to his perfect will and word. But know this today, behind the will of God is the heart of God and an amazing love that he has for you. I love this. For God so loved the world. Why did God do this? Because he said he would do it and because God loves you. Ah, what a wonderful knowledge. I think at the deep heart of every individual on the face of the earth is a desire to know that somebody loves them. I think everybody in the world, the deepest longing of every heart is to know that somebody out there loves me. That's why marriage is so powerful. To be bonded with a person who knows, knows a lot about you and still loves you. Pretty big deal. But listen, there's a far greater love. The love of God that knows everything about you and he loves you. Somebody really big loves you. The God of all creation. Lord of heaven and earth. David says, I, you're doing this according to your word. It's also your heart. You love me. Overwhelms David. And then he goes on. He says in verse 22, for this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there's none like you and there's no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. 
I love that last portion, according to all that we have heard with our ears. I think David is saying, you know what? I grew up hearing about the greatness of God. I grew up hearing about this one true God. There's no one like God. He probably heard Deuteronomy and the Shema. Um, the Lord is one. He, he grew up hearing about these things. But now David has a personal experience of the greatness of God. See, it's one thing to hear about the greatness of God, to hear about the fact that there's no other God like the Lord God. But it's quite another thing for you to experience it personally. You know what I think David is saying? Mama told me God was great. Mama told me God was good. And now I can tell you on the basis of my experience, she was right. It's true. It really is true. God is great. There's no one like him. How many of you today would say, I knew about it, but now I know in my experience, God is great. Amen. The only people who can truly worship God are the people who have personally experienced his grace in their life. You personally experience it, you know what you'll say? All I heard is true. It really is true. No one like God. Then he goes on to say it's not just about him. Look at what he says in verse 23. And what one nation on earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods? Verse 24, for you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever. And you, O Lord God, have become their God. David says, this isn't just about me. This is about the nation. David says, we as a nation, as a people, it's this beginning, this understanding in David's heart that the only explanation for Israel is the grace of God. God um, dispersed the nations at the Tower of Babel, and then he, as the sinfulness of man is spread out to the four corners of the earth, God says, I'm going to have my own nation. And God chooses Israel. Now, make no mistake, the word of God tells us that it's not like God looked out on all the nations and said, boy, that Israel, they are something special. Boy, they are so smart and intelligent. I think I gotta have them. No, God just in his grace says, Abraham, leave your family, leave your country, and go where I tell you. And I'll make you great. And I'll make this nation great. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And what David says here is that God took this nation, Israel, and he chose them, he redeemed them, he bought them back, he blessed them, he kept them. Why? For the greatness of his name. That was the, the purpose of Israel, that they, they would be a people that God chose and he blessed and in his grace he revealed his word to them and as they followed his word and they trusted him by faith, they would know the blessings of God, they would know the peace of God and the world around them would say, I don't know what they got but I want some of that. 
And the world around them would be drawn to them like a moth to a flame because of not their greatness, but because of the greatness of the God that they worshiped. God says, I'm going to redeem this people. I'm going to use this people to show off how great I am and to draw people to me. And listen, you and I, you know what Peter says is God has turned his attention to the Gentiles and to the nations and the church and the establishment of the remnant of Israel and the Gentiles were the mystery. Do you know what Peter says to us in 1 Peter chapter 2? He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It speaks to all of this, these verses that we're looking at. God intervened in your life God showed you your sin. God showed you the glory of Jesus Christ. God drew you to himself. God saved you. God changed you. God redeemed you. God has kept you. God is changing you. Why? So that he might display his glory in your life. Our lives, what he's saying is, is the nation of Israel as they followed him were to elevate the opinion of God among men. That's what it means to glorify. It means to change men's opinion on the basis of your life. That's what we're called to do. Did you know that? People are intended to look at us and say, how in the world do you have such an amazing marriage? How in the world does that woman stay with you? Why does she love you so much? Why do you love her? Why do you seem to be so happy? And you don't tell them, well, you know, we were smart, and, and boy, I just tell you, I figured out this marriage deal really well, and so I'm able to, no, you tell them, I'll tell you how, the grace of God. I'll tell you, because God is great, he gave me his word, and as I live by his word, I'm able to display his glory in my life and in my marriage and in my family, and in that way, we elevate the opinion of God among men in our homes, in our workplaces, and in the world. That's what Israel was called to do, that's what we're called to do. So that we glorify God and we draw people to him. Look at what he says. He goes on to say, um, verse 25, Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. David is praying really bold. It's interesting to me because as I read this, you, you think on the front end, God reveals his grace and David's just gonna have a pity party. Boy, I'm just a worthless sinner. I'm nothing. And it kind of starts out that way, which is the natural response when you understand the grace of God. But he doesn't stay there, does he? Listen, the purpose of God demonstrating and showing you and revealing his grace to you is not so that you would sit and think you're a wretched sinner for the rest of your life. It's to lift your eyes and to focus on the greatness of God. And then you become very bold. Because as God has spoken to you, you begin to pray the, the word of God. You want to have boldness in your prayer life? Start praying the word of God back to God. You find the promises of God in his word. You start praying it back to God. See, half our prayer life is spent praying our plans and then asking God to bless it. Can I tell you, God never promised to bless your plans. He did promise to bless his word and his plan. You want to have power in your prayer life? You start praying the word of God back to God. That's what David does. David's got no confidence in himself. He's got confidence in God that God 
always keeps his word. That's the boldness. So we, we go to God's word. We pray the word of God back. This is what you said you were going to do, God. Now do it. And do it for the sake of your name. For your greatness and your glory to be known on the earth. Look at those last two verses and we'll quit. Now, Lord God, you're God and your words are truth. I love, David believed in the word of God. Do you believe the word of God is true? Do you believe that every portion of God's word is true? At some point, you've got to decide if you're going to believe what this world tells you or are you going to believe the word of God? David says, I believe this book is true and I'm going to pray it back to God and I'm going to live by it and I'm going to trust in him. Now, Lord God, you're, you are God and your words are truth and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. David says, God, your word is true. For the sake of your name, the greatness of your glory, let it be done. There's one thing you see throughout this entire passage. It's David proclaiming that only God is great. David will be reminded throughout his life, he is a man who was continually captivated by the grace of God, that God would do anything in his life. In fact, he gets to the end of his life in 2 Samuel 23, and he'll basically say, he gathers the family, and he's about to die. He says, family, come on in. Come on in. And he says, I'm just, remember this about me. I'm just the son of Jesse. I'm a nobody. I'm the sweet psalmist of Israel. You know what David wanted his family to know about him? Just Jesse's boy. And I'm just a worshiper. And I love God. And God has seen fit for his glory to do more through me than he ever thought possible. God is great. I, Louis XIV, king of France, amazing. 72-year monarchy, one of the longest monarchies. But if you rule for 72 years, you have a tendency to become prideful. And uh, he did a lot of great things. His architecture imprint is on France, and specifically in France, and, or in Paris, and, and, uh, but just a lot of great accomplishments. He, but he became very, very arrogant. At the end of his life, he directed the bishop about how his funeral would, would um, proceed. And he made the, the very clear directives that he would lie in state for a certain amount of time in a particular cathedral. And in that cathedral, he would have his casket there. His casket was pure gold, obviously, got to have pure gold. And then jewels all around it. And he wanted the entire room darkened except for one candle, only one candle, right there at the head of his casket to illuminate what he said was his singular glory in the nation. So everybody came through to look at the glory of this man. The bishop did everything that the king had asked him to do except when the processional was over, when the people had come through and the service was beginning with all the people seated in the cathedral, the bishop went over to that candle and he snuffed it out. And he proclaimed, only God is great. Listen to me this morning. If you, if you know this morning you're a sinner, 
If you know that there's nothing in you that would appease the wrath of God, if you know today, even on your best day, you could never save yourself. If you know that you are hopeless in and of yourself, if you know today that you're dead in your transgressions and sins, if you would admit today you're poor in spirit, you're spiritually bankrupt, can I tell you, boy, we got a Savior for you. And his name is Jesus. And he saw you in your sinful condition, and he came, and he did all the work, not because you're lazy, but because he's good and thorough. And when he does a work, he does it all. And he did all the work on the cross, and he confirmed that he's God in the resurrection, and now he has made a way of salvation whereby you don't do anything except believe in Jesus. One man was asked, what did you do in the participation of your salvation, he said, I sinned. That's how much you contribute. But by, on the basis of faith, you believe in Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God is imputed to your account and you're saved. But if you're here today and you think you're something special, you think one day you're gonna stand before God and you will and he's gonna be impressed with you, can I just say, I ain't got nothing for you. Good luck with all that. And I tell you, I plead with you, trust in Jesus. God is great. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, this text, this ancient text that was recorded for our benefit so that we could know of your greatness. God, I, I pray for anybody here that doesn't know you, maybe they've never even considered the depth of their sinfulness. God, I pray that they would know today, just like David, no matter how great they think they are, no matter how much they think they've accomplished, in light of your glory, they are woefully inadequate. They come up way short. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I pray, though, today they would see the work of Christ, that he came for them, and they would trust in Jesus as their only hope of salvation. And they would know today, maybe they've heard of your greatness today, but they've never experienced it. I pray today that through faith in Jesus Christ, they would know. They'd be able to say, all that I heard is true. Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would be day by day captivated by your grace. God, there is nothing in this world more repulsive than an arrogant Christian. Lord, day by day, overwhelm us by your grace. Remind us of who we are, where we've come from. But God, I pray that we would continue to lift our eyes to you and that our confidence would not come in ourselves, but the greatness of the God we serve and the truthfulness of his word. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.